My name is Emma Casey, and this is Seed Stage Stories, a podcast where leaders, innovators, and entrepreneurs share the experiences that shape them and offer advice to the next generation of changemakers. Today, I'm lucky to have Joseph Woodbury, the co-founder and CEO of Neighbor, on the show. Neighbor is a hyper-local marketplace for storage, which allows people to monetize extra space in their homes and garages. To start us off, Tell me the story of how you went from a BYU student interested in consulting to starting Neighbor and bringing one of the top venture capital firms to Utah. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me on the show, Emma. And and we, like you said, we started this in school. Um, I, all three of our, our co-founders, myself and our other two co-founders, were planning on very, doing very different things after we graduated. We were not planning on doing a startup. Um, the summer before our senior year, though, my co-founder Preston had this brilliant idea for Neighbor. He and his wife were had just gotten married and they were looking to move out, go out of the country to work for a global humanitarian org in South America. And they looked into getting a storage unit and kind of had the same experience that I think everyone has when they go to get a storage unit. And that is that all the ones close by were completely full and they were going to have to drive a half hour over to the next city to find one that had any vacancy and they were going to charge super high prices. And so Preston, my co-founder, he found a friend that let him store in his garage instead. And when they got back from their summer in South America, they went to pick their items up. And Preston just thought, you know, this was such a better experience. I felt so much more peace of mind knowing my items were in a nice clean garage in a neighborhood I trusted. Plus I saved a lot of money. Um, there's got to be empty space in every neighborhood in the country. Why doesn't everyone do this? Why isn't there some sort of marketplace or directory where you could look up the empty space in your neighborhood? Uh, he he told myself and our other co-founder Colton about it. I remember thinking, wow, that's like the best idea I've ever heard of. Why doesn't this exist? This has to exist. Um, so brilliant. And uh, we started building Neighbor our senior year. Uh, towards the end of our senior year of school, we... We called our jobs. I think you mentioned I was I was headed off to do consulting for Bain & Company. Uh, each of us called our jobs and said, hey, we're not going to show up. We're going to do this little startup full time. And, and that's kind of where it got started. Um, fast forward, you know, we graduated. We still didn't have any money. Uh, so we were kind of working unpaid for the first little bit of the startup. And, and we raised a seed round from... Uh, Pelion Ventures, which I believe is the largest venture firm in Utah, and another group, Album Ventures, which is uh, one of the top seed funds in Utah. And um, that helped us kickstart here in Utah. We built out the platform here in Utah, built a product that we felt people loved. And then um, kind of, I'll, I'll, I'll stop right where we raised our Series A uh, from Andreessen Horowitz, which was the first time they'd ever led a round in Utah. And kind of raise that round to take it across the country. Yeah, and one thing I just want to point out that I think is really cool about the story of Neighbor is that, as a lot of people say, ideas are cheap, but you, Preston and Colton, really put in the hard work to take a good idea and turn it into a viable business. And I know from reading a little bit about Neighbor that you guys did some really hands-on scrappy things in the early days with water bottles and speaking at company lunches. And so 
could you speak a little bit about that in some of um, the tactics you used, maybe things that don't scale um, to really bring neighbor to where it is today? Yeah, that that is definitely the early story of neighbor is things that don't scale. I mean, pretty much everything we did doesn't scale from our product. And our product was a WordPress website where you could put in your email if you wanted to be a host or if you wanted to be a renter. And the back end was us, right? So we would call the host and we'd ask them, you know, what kind of space they had. And then we'd call the renter and, and we'd ask them what items they needed to store. And then we'd call the host and ask them if those items worked in their space. And then we'd call the renter and ask them if that space worked for them. And then we'd call the host and ask them what they wanted <laughs> to charge for the space. And then we'd call the renter and ask them if that price worked for them. And then we'd call the host and, and, uh, ask them what their Venmo is so we could pay them. And then the renter would Venmo us and we would Venmo the host. And we got like four Venmo accounts shut down because we're not supposed to do that. Um, <laughs> and and that is that was our product. And the way we got users to the product was also non-scalable. We got our first host literally by going around Utah to different neighborhoods and knocking on doors. And uh, then we kind of moved to flyers and we had these flyers and we felt like people weren't looking at them and they were throwing them away. So I remember had this idea to attach a dollar bill to the flyers and, and paperclip it. Cause like people couldn't throw a dollar bill away, I guess. <laughs> and so we changed the text of the flyer to say, this is the first dollar bill you'll make on neighbor. And we attached a $1 bill to all the flyers and we'd fly our neighborhoods and try to get people to look at that flyer and not throw it away. Um, and, and so, yeah, both the marketing and the product was, was very non-scalable. You mentioned that, that as we grew and, and got larger across Utah, we identified a great early adopter customer, which was kind of young business professionals that had, you know, had just moved into their first home. They made great early adopter hosts for us. And so we thought, you know, what, what are some ways we can get at these young early adopter hosts? And we needed to be where they are. And, and these young professionals were at work at, you know, other software companies and other uh, companies throughout the state. And we talked to a few other companies. They said the best way to pitch them is to do these things called lunch and learns, where you coordinate with the company to buy all their employees lunch. And then you show up and, and you give a presentation about your company while they're eating lunch. And there were several companies we knew that that had worked really well for um, we started doing this and, uh, it was all right, but it was time consuming. It was expensive to buy lunch. It took forever to coordinate all these lunch and learns. And at the end of the day, most people didn't want to do them. And so, uh, it worked for, for companies with larger budgets, but it did not work for us, but we still wanted to get at these professionals. And, um, another hacky idea, just like I'd come up with this idea for the dollar bill. My co-founder Preston came up with this idea. He said, he said, what if instead of uh, going and doing these lunch and learns, we could print these water bottles. He found this water bottle company where we could print these really nice kind of smart bottle looking water bottles for, for really cheap, just plastic water bottles. And uh, we could print the label to show a step-by-step -step of our app and how it worked and how much money you would make. So Preston went and got a ton of these water bottles printed 
And then we got a team of people to just go show up at offices all around uh, Utah. No coordination necessary. You didn't have to announce. You just show up, put a water bottle on the front desk, or put a case of water bottles on the front desk. And the receptionist, unlike the rest of the junk mail that they get, they can't throw it away. So the receptionist has to go put it in the fridge and then employees take it. And then there's these water bottles sitting on desks for the next six months at that company. And we had a huge response. It was a very successful campaign. I think Preston distributed over half a million water bottles across Utah and California during the early days of Neighbor. Wow. I mean, I think it's a testament to how hard it is to get a marketplace business up and running. And I know that Neighbor's really one of the first consumer marketplaces in Utah. We see a lot of B2B SaaS and some fintech and I'm curious what your experience has been building a marketplace. Maybe what are some initial challenges you have faced um, related to growth or scaling GMV, but also if there are any tailwinds that come with sort of building this different type of business. Yeah. I mean, a marketplace is a totally different animal when it comes to a startup. It's almost like a, a whole different experience altogether. Um just kind of zooming out at a high level, if you think about the largest internet companies in the world, all of them are marketplaces, right? Uh, so it it is the highest potential business model, um, but it's also the most difficult to, to get started, which is why you see few of them. But going through the top valued companies in the world, Amazon, it's an e-commerce marketplace. Um, uh, Facebook is a social marketplace. Airbnb is a hospitality marketplace. Uber is a transportation marketplace. Uh, even Apple, right? Uh, they derive how, the way they're able to sell iPhones is through the, is because their iPhones come with an app store that's valuable. It's an app marketplace uh, where they derive most of their value from. <clears throat> and so the power of peer-to-peer is very strong because your growth potential is unlimited. SaaS businesses are also really exciting because you can grow them very quickly and you can do it in a pretty capital efficient manner. You know, a SaaS company can raise a hundred or $200 million over their life cycle. They can stand up a large sales team. They can sell the small, medium enterprise size businesses, and they can grow very quickly to a hundred million, 200 million in ARR, um, and get to kind of this one to $2 billion valuation. But at some point, a SaaS company starts running out of businesses to sell to. And so you kind of see this almost logarithmic curve where, you know, who do we sell to next? Now you got to focus on increasing your share of wallet with your customers. Marketplaces, on the other hand, they take whole industries and they distribute them to a peer-to-peer model and they can disrupt the entire industry. So there's almost no limit. Um, If you look at the taxi and limo industry that Uber and Lyft disrupted, um, the industry was doing around $5 billion a year in, in annual revenue. Uh, taxis and limos, uh, Uber and Lyft showed up, created a whole different model. And now Uber and Lyft together do almost $100 billion in, in annual bookings around the, the globe. So they grew that industry substantially. They didn't just come in and take a billion of the $5 billion in in North America that was happening. They the the taxis and limos are still doing $5 billion or more today, 
they took almost nothing. They, they just grew the size of the industry dramatically. So when marketplaces, because they present a whole new business model, can grow the size of the industry. Yeah, and another thing that's interesting about marketplaces and is particularly pertinent to neighbors is this idea of um, economic empowerment. I know one of your investors, Jeff Jordan, talks about this a lot, but um, he said that nearly every big platform hits escape velocity by helping people make more money. And I think having this passive nature of the business um, and also giving people a really low lift way to increase their income, I imagine, has been um, something really powerful for you guys. Yeah, he's absolutely right. And and Jeff's got a lot of experience with this. He he helped build eBay.com. He ran all of eBay North America for them early on. And then when they purchased PayPal, which is a kind of a peer-to-peer payments platform, he went to serve as president of, uh, of PayPal. And then he went and was CEO of OpenTable, the restaurant marketplace, and helped take them public. And, and then since becoming an investor, he's invested. He invested early in 2011 in this little company no one had ever heard of called Airbnb. And he sits on their board today and, and Instacart and OfferUp and, and Pinterest and Neighbor and, and all sorts of marketplaces. And he's right that each of them work through economic empowerment. You know, look at the Airbnb numbers. They've handed out over 100, they've given out over $150 billion to their hosts. And that's money that people weren't earning before. $150 billion. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's larger than the GDPs of some, com- some countries that they've created an economic opportunity for people. But if you look at their growth, again, uh, of that $150 billion they've given out, they gave out around a billion from 2008 to 2016 for the first eight years of their existence. And the other $149 billion they've given out since 2017. And so they've scaled, you know, it's, it's a very exponential growth curve. Neighbor takes this to a whole new level where um, the payments on Neighbor were the first truly passive income marketplace. Uh, you've had Instacart and DoorDash and Uber where you have to actually go work in order to earn money. You, you do earn money and they do distribute you funds, but you kind of have to work for it by driving around. Even Airbnb is pretty high touch where you have to, one, be wealthy enough that you can afford a second home to go rent out. And two, you know, your renter stays for one or two or three days, uh, your guest, and then you have to clean up after them and get it ready for the next guest and constantly be managing your bookings. Neighbor as a platform, we're the first one that's like, first of all, universally accessible uh, almost anyone can list extra space, whether it's a closet or a garage or a shed. Uh, many Americans in all income classes have extra space that they can rent out. And then once you get a renter, that transaction lasts six months, 12 months, 24 months, 36 months. We have some users from our 2017 cohorts when we first started the company that are still renting with us today. And so then you just get, wow. as, a, as a host, you're earning money, you know, someone comes and stores their boat on the side of your house and they only come grab it, you know, six, seven times a year in the summer. And the rest of the time you're earning money, you're getting a direct deposit into your bank account for doing nothing. It doesn't take any time away. It's, it's free passive income. 
Yeah, like you mentioned, it's a really exciting opportunity because the market is so big. Um, and I mean, you guys have investors from like the top firms in the world. I know the CEO of DoorDash, StockX, uh, Uber also invested in Neighbor. And so you're in sort of this really um, great position to grow and um, hopefully achieve the same um, scale as these platforms like Airbnb. And I'm curious, I know that you didn't anticipate becoming an entrepreneur in college, and it is a pretty significant leadership role to be sort of at the head of this company right now. Were there any early life experiences, maybe things that you did in college that helped prepare you for this kind of role? Or is it a lot of learning as you go? Um, no, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of learning as you go. <laughs> which I think is true for, for a lot of founders. I've definitely been benefited by having two really smart, strong co-founders that I could rely on and we could learn together, um, which has been very helpful. I did have, um, you know, my, my background was more on, on kind of the finance and, and politics side of things. I had worked for an investment bank and a private equity firm. So I did have some understanding of, of, you know, kind of investors and how they work and how they think about businesses and how they like to grow them. And, and um, then I spent the rest of my time working, you know, I, I worked for the Senate Majority Leader in, in DC and had done some other things in, in state within state legislatures. Um, and that maybe at some point will become helpful, but isn't really applicable to, to what we're doing right now. So it was a lot of learning. Uh, we, we were lucky to be founded in Utah, where I think there's a really strong startup ecosystem and a very sharing startup ecosystem. I think in some of these markets, you have a lot of startups, but they're kind of un unwilling to talk to each other. But um, we, you know, when we started Neighbor, just a few months after starting, we were still called Neighbor, spelled with a Y. So this kind of looked like Neighbor. Um, and we were these students that had just graduated, and we were sitting down with you know, Aaron Sconard at Pluralsight or Jeremy Andrus at Traeger um, and and Jonathan Johnson at Overstock. And everyone was just so willing to share and teach us and mentor us and kind of patient with us as we figured it out and 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 grew in, in our way. So we had a, a lot of people help us along the way. Yeah, I, I had read that you worked for Harry Reid while you were in, in college, the Speaker of the House. And it also made me think of, I know to make a generalization, usually the people that are um, interested in politics have this vision of bettering the world and inciting a lot of change. And I know that not always, but it's typically not as top of mind for technology entrepreneurs. But from everyone that I've talked to, including like, John Mayfield, who's one of your investors, it just seems like Neighbor is such um, a high integrity team and you guys really are doing so much to increase income in these communities and bring people together. And so I wanted to ask how you view entrepreneurship in the context of making a positive impact on those around you. And I also know that your faith is important to you. And so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about those things. Yeah, and, that, and that's that's nice of John and others. That's that's generous. We're we're definitely we have our flaws as well. Um, but uh, 
you're right that one of the things that I think drew all three of us to this concept of neighbor was the opportunity to make the world a better place. You, I think something you have to know going into entrepreneurship is that your duty as an entrepreneur, your, your fiduciary duty is to maximize the revenue and the profits of what you're working on, right? Like that is how you make decisions. And so you better believe in what you're working on, right? Because if the thing that you're maximizing revenues and profits towards is not helping the world become a better place, well, you still have a duty to ha- help that company be successful. And so uh, you, you better be very careful what kind of company you start. <laughs> and that was something that really attracted me to this concept that Preston had. And part of the reason I think we called it neighbor and not store this or stash that or, or space something, we called it neighbor because all three of us really value this concept of community. Um, I grew up in a, a very small, small town, like less than 15,000 people. And I had, I, I was fortunate to grow up in a really strong community where everyone knew each other in the whole city and, you know, you never lock your doors and, um, you kind of can't get away with anything because, because it will always get back to your family and, and just kind of this really strong tight knit community. I think that's largely missing across the country and not to get too political, but I think it's the source of most of our problems in society is that we don't know our neighbors anymore. It, it's, we just don't talk to our neighbors. We kind of, we'll wave to them. We'll say hi and be nice, but we don't connect with them. We don't create community locally. And this has led to the dissolution of local newspapers. Um, we Politically, we all care about national issues now, and that's all we care about. Um, and and we, we put people into camps. And so we will, we will say, oh, you care about the other side of this national issue, and therefore I hate you and you're a bad person. If you were to sit those same two people that are like spewing vitriol on Facebook at each other, if you were to sit them in a room together, um, they would quickly be much nicer. Uh, they just would. We are we are nicer face to face, and in an increasingly remote world where every all the companies are going remote as well, we had already lost our neighborhoods, and our companies were our last public square where people from different backgrounds came together in a physical space on a daily basis and interacted with each other and learned to like each other and learned the positives about people who were different from each other. And now we've even lost that with, with um, things going so remote. And so this problem is just going to keep getting worse where we keep getting more divided until we do things to bring back community. And, and one of my favorite things about neighbor is hearing the stories of neighbors that have lived next to each other for five years, and then they rent each other's space on neighbor and, they write us in and they're like, I had to go over to their house to, to move in my boxes. And they came out and helped me carry boxes in to be nice. And while we were carrying boxes in, we had to talk about something because you got to talk about something and kind of forced us to talk to each other. And we realized we had a lot in common and we realized we like each other. And, and you know, I'm a Democrat and they're a Republican and we don't hate each other. And how cool is this? And we do news stories all the time where we'll feature like a host and a renter that now go to lunch every Thursday with each other. They become really good friends and they never knew each other before this, or we've even had people start dating uh, because they met on our platform, 
which um, is kind of crazy. But uh, the, I think Preston and Colton shared these values. I mean, that's why they had this vision for this, this hyper-local community-centric. It's because we believe in this concept of community. You mentioned faith. I definitely think it's informed by faith. Um, you know, our, our, uh, we have, we're as co-founders, we have a shared faith and it's, and it's very built on community. Um, Utah, I think benefits from this. If you look at the numbers on social mobility, uh, there's every state and then there's one state at the very top that ranks way higher than every other state in terms of economic mobility. And this is defined by the number of people that start out in one economic class that end their lives in a higher economic class. And Utah, by far, just sweeps the floor with every other state. And it's because we have these strong kind of faith-driven uh, geographic groups of community where, where these, these faith groups are zoned by geography, not by type of person. And so you get these groups of people that are going to church every Sunday with, the, with people who are not like them, uh, people who may live in different income classes. It's just, you just draw a line in a geographic area and all those people go to the same building together. And creating community and getting to know people in a physical public square is what fosters economic mobility. And if we were able to create this type of community all across the country, then every state would have that kind of economic mobility. Yeah, I think it was uh, an economist named Raj Chetty who created this heat map like by zip code in America and like Utah just really stands out. And those two things, I think economic mobility and a strong sense of community were definitely palpable for me when I moved to Utah for a year um, before starting college. And I actually lived with um, family friends in Pleasant Grove. And I was just so taken aback by how here I was just, you know, a friend of their neighbor living temporarily in their basement and they would remember my name and invite me over to dinner. And even the concept of economic mobility, um, the dad in the family that I was staying with, he was a Pell Grant student. And because of the mentors that he found through the church, he's now the chief sales officer at Podium. And so... I, it's something that's like really powerful. And the cool thing about neighbor too is, you know, like we've talked about, you brought the best, uh, arguably the best venture capital firm in the world to Utah, but you're really bringing that Utah sense of um, community and closeness with those around you to the broader world through this simple concept of storing your stuff with a neighbor. Yeah, that's our hope is to, and we're starting with storage. Um, but we like to say, you know, storage is, is, is like the books to our Amazon. You know, it's, it's Amazon began with books because it was a great vertical that had a lot of velocity um, to start an e-commerce marketplace off of. But then they've now branched to many different categories in the e-commerce space. We like to say we're in the neighborhood space and we're starting with storage. Um, but now we have active users today in every city and every state in the country. We have active users and these are neighbors opening up their homes to allow their neighbors come use storage. But storage is just our books. So we want to expand to different categories uh, over time as we grow the company 
to where neighbors can do all sorts of things for each other on neighbor.com and really kind of invest in this sense of community where maybe your neighbor has a, uh, uh, you know, $1,500 table saw and you don't want to buy a $1,500 table saw. So you go use your neighbors, right? And just keeping things hyper local. And, and there's, there's, of course, you're getting paid for it, but there's also a sense of service going on. It's like a lot of these items or spaces sit unused in people's homes for a long time. And people would be more than willing to let others use them if there was a way to know that they had them and for a request to come in and for there to be some sort of insurance uh, so that nothing got damaged. And that's what a marketplace does is it creates trust. And so what we sell, what our hosts sell is a service. Our hosts sell storage. Our hosts will sell other things in the future. We're not a storage company. Uh, our hosts are a storage company. We sell trust. Like we are a trust company. We infuse trust into the marketplace and we help renters and hosts trust each other to work together. Yeah, it's really exciting to hear a little bit about your larger vision. And I know one thing, especially for you as the CEO, that comes with um, scaling a marketplace and starting these new verticals is creating a super strong culture in the workplace. And I know earlier you touched on the importance of in-person culture. And I know you've written about this in a word, I think called propinquity. Um, and so I was just curious, maybe what are some of the things that you're doing as a leader to sort of put the infrastructure in place to build a world-changing company and create a really um, positive place for people to work? Yeah, yeah. One of our favorite things is occasionally uh, when we're doing a, an interview, you know, with an out-of-state candidate, and it's kind of a we're, we're on a Zoom interview, and they'll share their screen or something. Sometimes we'll see a little tab up in their browser where they've Googled the word propinquity, and we can tell they got that from <laughs> their careers page and, and Googled it. And that's always fun to see. Um, and propinquity is this word that defines closeness, right? Being together, um, and our our there's kind of been this big nationwide discussion over the last two years, two and a half years around the merits of remote versus in-person work. And it's, it's um, somewhat pained us to see this discussion center around worker productivity. Uh, and you've got all these people that argue being in person is way more productive um, because you're in person and, all these people that argue being remote is way more productive because there's fewer distractions and all that stuff. And for us, productivity is just not the right question to be asking. Um, if, if you hire great people and you trust those people, it doesn't matter where they work. They could work in the office. They could work in Timbuktu and they're going to be productive. Great people are productive. That's just how great people are. It does not matter where they work, especially if you trust them. So really the question I think we should be asking ourselves is, is this question of relationships and community, not productivity. And do we form the tight relationships and, and, and bonds and community uh, in remote versus coming together in a public space on a regular basis. 
And I think that helps provide clarity. And we as humans, we are social beings. That's that's how we are. If you look at the course of human history, uh, you know, going back thousands and thousands of years, we've been moving closer together, not further away. Like human progress is is creating more proximity and more propinquity because we as humans do amazing things when we're when we're together. And we want to preserve that. We have a really tight knit kind of community neighborly culture um, where where we value those relationships. We know each other's families. We care about uh, each other's situations. We do stuff with each other after work. Work isn't just about being productive. It's where we, it's, it's, if you think you, you dedicate a lot of your life to your work, whether you're remote or in person, you dedicate a lot of your life. You'd hate for that to be a mercenary relationship where it's, you know, you pay me, I give you work and that's the end of it. Um, there's such a missed opportunity there to really form lifelong French lifelong friendships and bonds. And, and especially when you're working on a mission driven project where we're trying to change the world and bring communities closer together all over the world and disrupt a, you know, half a trillion dollar industry. Um, uh, you know, I, I just think about the project to go to the moon and to build the, the first, uh, you know, the Apollo mission. Do you imagine doing that in a fully remote environment? It would just be so much better with the camaraderie that comes on working on a great mission together and being dedicated to something that many people don't think is possible, like putting a man on the moon. Uh, and we view it very similar here at Neighbor. Yeah, and I think uh, your your last point on sort of doing it um, with people who you trust um, and you enjoy spending time with outside of work is important. And it seems like, you and Preston and Colton have a really strong founder relationship. And I know that's something a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs are thinking about. And so do you have any pieces of advice for someone that maybe have a good idea and are sort of going through the process of finding other people to work on it with? Yeah. And this is, this is so hard to get right. Um, I, Almost every single founder friend that I have has had major co-founder conflict. And it's often the source of demise for the company. You know, many, many startups fail in the first year or two because of founder conflict. And if you look at the amount of founders that even make it past the first couple of years, it, you know, usually out of two or three founders, one of them ends up leaving in the first year or two. And if you contrast that with, with neighbor, Preston Colton and I have like never had a major conflict in the five years of working at neighbor. Um, not, not, not even just, a, a, a you know, a company threatening one, but not even just conflict. We've worked together so well. And I've asked myself several times, like, why is that? Did we just get lucky? And in some ways, I think there, there's probably some aspect of luck. Preston and Colton are just super high integrity individuals that are incredibly hardworking and incredibly good at what they do. Uh, I, I'm sure they uh, couldn't be able to say the same about me, but they tolerate me. Um, one of the things we did early on that I think all companies should do is we sat down like right after this thing was founded and we had a conversation about being founders and we just kind of made it clear to each other 
that the title founder would never mean anything more than you're the person that started the company and you start out with a, a large portion of the equity. That's it. Doesn't, doesn't entitle you to anything beyond that. Um, uh, it doesn't entitle you to be in certain meetings. It doesn't entitle you to have a certain say in decisions. All it does is it means you started the company and you have a, a lion's share portion of the equity, right? That's what founder means. And we also went around and made clear to each other that each of us would always, if the time ever came that we couldn't scale our abilities with the business, we would step down, either step away or take a, a different role, a non-executive role in the company. Um, and we would be kind of selfless about it. And it would be all about making the company successful and not about making us personally successful. And that commitment to each other has kept us hungry and humble and willing to grow because each of us knows, I know, that if I'm ever not the right CEO for neighbor, then I'll go, you know, ask for them to give me a job. I would love to be a, I would love to be a product manager or, or on the marketing team, you know, like I'd love for marketing or for neighbor to staff me in one of those roles. And, uh, that would be a lot of fun for me. And so, so I do everything I can to continue scaling as a CEO. Um, Preston and Colton have continued to scale in their roles and they've taken different roles over time. Uh, uh, you know, Colton has gone from managing our operations of the company to managing kind of our strategy department, which included, he set up our whole data and analytics system that's very robust today. And now he manages our community team, which encompass customer support and trust and safety and user activation. And he's done each of those with excellence. And he's also been, there's a great article by First Round called Giving Up Your Legos, which talks about how, you know, to be successful and to continue, continue growing, you have to constantly be giving away your Legos. You have to do something really good and and then give them away to someone else. And Colton's done a phenomenal job of not holding on. He, he's given them away. Preston, similarly, he's went from running marketing to running brand marketing to now runs product and design for the company. And he's been willing to make each of these changes and do what's right and best for the company. Um, and so I just think having that kind of low ego collaborative, there's nothing special about the founders. We're just contributors to the company like everyone else. Uh, definitely helps maintain strong founder relationships. Yeah, it's it's really great advice. And the last question that I ask all the guests on the podcast is just, if you could put yourself back in the shoes of your 20-year-old self and maybe share some pieces of advice for um, young aspiring entrepreneurs um, around that age, uh, what would you what would you tell them? Oh, I, uh, I'm I'm I, I'm still twenty something, so I don't know if I can give that much advice. Uh, uh, <clears throat> the the first thing that I'd probably share is that in, unless you're in, in unless you're starting a company that's almost an exact duplicate of another company, exact copycat of another company, um, you're going to have to build your company. You can't rely on the lessons of, of other companies. We've, 
we've made the mistake several times over the course of our company of like taking something that worked really well for Airbnb, using it on our platform, and then it just doesn't work for our users because we're not building a travel and hospitality marketplace. We're building a self-storage marketplace. Um, and and you need to think from first principles always uh, would, would be an advice and not, not try to do what others are doing, but always think what is the right decision based on first principles, based on our users. The second, it's super cliche, but like I think the reason it gets repeated so often by uh, founders in the later stages is, is because none of us do it as well as we should have. Even the people that do it extremely well don't do it as well as they should have. And that is get to know your customers, like ravenously get to know your customers in every way, shape and form, quantitatively, qualitatively, interview them, watch them, know them, use the product yourself, be a customer because the best insights we've gotten and the best decisions that we've made have always come from a customer perspective. And that's not always doing exactly what the customer s- says they think you should do, but it's always comes back to cus- solving the customer's problem. Um, and so that's something I'd share. And then, you know, last, I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs that, that, you know, start companies cause they want to start a company, right? They've always dreamed of starting a company. And so they start a company because things great. And maybe they start two or three companies. They'll, they'll start one, they'll put it away. They'll start another, then they'll put it away. And they kind of just go through because they're trying to find like a great idea, you know, and, and start a company. And my advice is always um, don't do that. Uh, starting a company is so hard. Don't it. It is, it is you know, taxing in, in every way, uh, shape and form. And it's an, as Mark Andreessen calls doing a startup, a non-economic proposition. He said, net, net, you could always make more money on an expected value basis by, you know, going and working for, you know, a company that's already successful. Um, So it's a non-economic proposition. So only do it if you, if you have an idea that you really believe in, right? Not something that you think is going to make you money, but something that you're just like the world has to have this and i'm the person that's passionate enough to make the world have it and i will do whatever it takes and i will go through years and years of difficulty to make this happen because it's not about being successful Uh, because the reality is no matter what idea you have it's going to be really difficult so you got to have some sort of underlying motivation in order to be able to push through that uh, and not just want to start a company to because you think it'll add to your resume or stroke your ego because you probably won't be successful doing that. And that's why I think nine in 10 startups fail. Yeah, it's those are such great points. And I just want to say thank you, Joseph. I think you're such an incredible example for young entrepreneurs and someone who really is doing it um, because you had a great idea. You had a great group um, of friends to work with and you guys have made such a big impact already. So. Thank you so much for being on the show and and sharing your advice. Thank you, Emma. I appreciate you doing this podcast.